Hi, I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Today is Remembrance Day. It's the first one since the fall of Kabul in Afghanistan. And even before the U.S. and other coalition forces withdrew from the country in August, soldiers and veterans have been working overtime to get Afghan interpreters and support staff to safety. Anyone who doesn't think that those people are vets really doesn't understand what it means to be a soldier in arms, as far as I'm concerned. That's retired Corporal Robin Rickards. He joins us on the show today to talk about how his Afghan interpreter friend managed to escape to his hometown of Thunder Bay. So let's cut through the noise. You're listening to The Decibel. Hi, Robin. Thanks for talking with me today. It's a pleasure, Adrian. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, to talk about the issue. So can you tell me a bit about your service in the Canadian Armed Forces and what you did while you were in Afghanistan? Sure. I served 11 years with the uh, the Canadian Forces as a reservist and did four tours of duty overseas with one to Bosnia-Herzegovina and three to Afghanistan in one in the summer of 2006, one in the summer of 2008, and one over the uh, winter uh, months of 2009-2010. So Canada was in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2014, and uh, you've since moved on to a new career, but you've kept in touch with Afghans you met there, right? Yeah, I've, I've tried to keep in touch and they uh, they had an interest in my life, I had an interest in theirs, and so uh, those friendships have been maintained through the years. Folks might understand the role of interpreters for the military there, but can you tell us a bit about the roles that Afghans might play for the military? You know, take for instance the kitchen staff. In earlier conflicts, those, uh, those staff members would have consisted of Canadian Forces personnel, uh, preparing the meals for the uh, for the soldiers uh, doing engaged in the fighting, but in Afghanistan, what we saw was that we had uh, a significant delegation of that responsibility to to local nationals. So we would have a kitchen officer, usually a sergeant or a warrant officer, who would be in charge of uh, a whole host of Afghans who would prepare our meals and who we could rely on to uh, to feed us and quite frankly, not uh, not betray us because, you know, the, the opportunity was there had they had they wanted to and they, they would have been rewarded handsomely. But, you know, we never saw an instance of Canadian soldiers being poisoned by the uh, the Afghans that fed them because there was this uh, deal that they were uh, they were working with us to help build a better future for Afghanistan. And tell me a bit more about this potential for betrayal. I mean, what what inspired Afghans to assist our military there and and be on side with our mission? The conversations that uh, that emerged from the the people that I spoke with uh, in in the bazaars, in the fields, so on and so forth, when those opportunities arose, was an idea that there might finally be a chance for some positive change in the direction their country was headed and in the direction their own lives were uh, were headed. And they were excited about that, and they were interested in finding ways to help that come to fruition faster. And mm-hmm. so a lot of Afghans worked with us because they had this honest belief that 
the Canadians are telling us they're going to build a better future with us. And they were eager to get to work. What's remarkable, though, about that belief and that hope is that it comes at the same time as a great deal of risk. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, these folks that worked with us were, they were basically, in the Taliban's eyes, Muslims who had abandoned Islam. And the, uh, the penalty for that is simply death. You know, we use the word traitors, but I think the more appropriate term in the context is apostates. And so whenever the opportunity arose, the Taliban would engage in targeted killings. And, and we saw that, uh, you know, back in 2011 with a fellow that we had nicknamed Popeye. Uh, his real name was Fida Mohammed. And he, uh, he didn't speak English at all. And we'd, we'd always greet him with, uh, with a senga yay or uh, talk to him a little bit in uh, the past two that uh, we had. You know, his, his tasks were very mundane. You know, he, uh, he, he would fuel the generators in the camp. He would, uh, he would you know, cut the, uh, cut the lawns and tend the flower beds. And that was sort of his work. Well, he went to visit his family in the, uh, went out one day to visit his family in the summer of 2011. And the Taliban pulled him off his uh, motorcycle and executed him on the street in, in Kandahar City because he had the temerity to tend the flower beds at the PRT and refuel our generators. But to the Taliban, he was an apostate. Wow. And, and so even a decade later, the Taliban still know who worked with us? Well, secrets want to be told. It's, it's very difficult to keep what you did away from people. People know, family know, friends know. When you were in Afghanistan, uh, you met someone named Abdul Jami Kohistani, or as you call him, Jami. How did you meet him? Uh, he was one of the interpreters with the, uh, the battle group. When, uh, when my company would go out and patrol, uh, our company commander uh, always wanted uh, Jami to come with us. So he'd, uh, he'd make a special request to the, uh, the company that... Uh, that we hired the contract or the uh, the interpreters from, and uh, so Jamie always came with us when we were patrolling. What what drew you to Jamie in particular? I don't know. How do you how did you decide how your who your childhood friends were going to be? Right. I mean, uh, some people the the conversations you strike up there's just a, a natural interest, and other conversations are polite, but that's the extent of it. You know, Jamie and I just had more interesting conversations and uh you know it was uh, mutual uh, mutual interest i was curious about afghanistan and he was very curious about canada uh our outlooks on the uh the world were sort of uh similar and uh yeah what did jamie do after the mission ended then after we drew down he went on to work with the the americans for a little bit and then uh, subsequently, he went on to work with a series of uh, NGOs in the uh, law reform section. And you kept in touch then, too? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'd talk, uh, you know, once or twice a, a month pretty consistently for the, uh, for the past decade. So let's fast forward then to August of this year. What were the messages from Jamie like at that time? 
Well, look, I mean, at, at one point in time, you know, Jeremy and I had talked about this for many years. I've been trying for 10 years to, to get him out of Afghanistan because even back then I, I recognized the risk. And in 2010, it became abundantly clear that public support was in Afghanistan was rapidly evaporating. People liked the fact that the Taliban wasn't there, but they didn't like what had replaced the Taliban. And so by the summer of last year, when Jamie was talking with me, it became a, uh, you know, we were talking one time, and I think uh, the quote from him sums it up best. He said, at some point, buddy, there's not going to be anything that you can do. We're trying everything. And and to this day, we're still trying everything because there's a lot of people other than Jamie who are, are still trapped, right? So... Um, we are getting to the point where there's going to be nothing that uh, that we can do. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do on the ground in Afghanistan to ensure their uh, their safety. So it becomes incumbent on Canada to provide a safe place for these folks to restart their lives, since we failed to live up to the uh, the promises that we made. Well, something that really struck me about the situation uh, as it came out in August was just how distant and 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 difficult and if not hopeless, it, it must have felt to to do anything about it. Uh, uh, what were you able to do for Jamie when the news was emerging about the fall of Kabul? Well, the answer is not much. The only thing that I did that helped Jamie out was that days before the end of August, somewhere around the 27th or 28th, I told his brother who was in the States, who had also worked for us and had subsequently gone on to work with the Americans. I told his brother Sammy, I said, you better call every American you know in the forces and you better find somebody who knows someone in that airport if you want to get your family to uh, safety. And Sammy got on the horn, managed to get in touch with a, a U.S. colonel who knew uh, one of the Marines in the airport and uh, that Marine had his translator call Jammy and arrange for them to be picked up and brought into the airport. Do you know what exactly happened when Jammy was picked up? There was a bit of a miscommunication. So uh, the Marine in the airport, rather than talking to Jammy directly, had, had his interpreter talk with him. The interpreter asked him how many people there were. Jamie told him that they had uh, 15 adults and 13 kids. And when the uh, when the vehicle showed up to pick them up, the bus showed up to pick them up, there were only uh, 15 seats left. And so the, uh, the family was left with the horrible decision of sorting who was going to get out to Canada or who was going to get out to the airport, not even necessarily out to Canada, but to the airport, and who is going to be left behind. So where is Jamie and his family now? Jamie and half of his family are here in Thunder Bay, uh, and we're working uh, working through the process of getting them settled into the uh, the community. You know, getting helping them get uh, get their health cards, helping them get uh, get settled into uh, to a new home, get the kids started in school, and so on and so forth. And you know, working on helping folks. Uh, find work and uh, get them into, uh, for the for the family members that don't speak English as well, get them into their, uh, their language classes. 
what has it been like seeing Jamie and his family here, you know, in your hometown? Um, you know, it's it it's been a goal that I've had for for a long time. So it's uh, I'm glad and I'm grateful that he's uh, that he's here. Um, there's also an anticlimax about it because. We still have to consider how we're going to deal with the other half of his family that are left behind. I know that uh, if the situations were reversed, Jamie'd be doing the uh, the same thing for me. But I also know what it would be like for my kids and myself to abandon everything we've known to go somewhere completely uh, foreign to us. And so... I, and I've often said it to, to many people, including Afghans that I've met when they'd ask why I came to Afghanistan. And I said, because your kids deserve to have the same opportunities that my kids have. The fact that my kids are born in Canada and your kids are born in Afghanistan shouldn't mean that there are such pronounced differences in their life that they may not even survive to adulthood because of where they uh, where they live. What do you think Canada owes Jamie and people like him? Look, I come from a labor background after my time in the forces. And I think the government as an employer has an obligation to make these people whole, right? And that means that they should be put in the the position they would be in were it not for Canada just throwing in the towel and giving up. And so the only place that we can do that is here in Canada, because we can't tell our allies here, take these guys for us. Yeah, we know they didn't work for you, but, uh, you know, we can't leave them behind to be slaughtered. There might be folks who, who don't necessarily see Afghan born nationals, you know, whether or not they supported uh, the CAF in this mission as veterans. I mean, are they veterans? Were the merchant marine veterans? You know, we had we had a long, painful battle in this country over many years about whether or not merchant mariners should be treated as veterans. And in the end, as a country, we recognized that they faced the same risks that the sailors in the uh, Royal Canadian Navy faced during the Second World War. Their boats were torpedoed. The, the the Germans didn't make a distinction between their boats, and in many cases, they deliberately targeted their boats to prevent the supplies from reaching Europe. Well, these folks are no different. The mission in Afghanistan would have been completely impossible were it not for the contributions these people made. The safety of Canadian troops, I mean, I want to be clear. At Fob Wilson and Fob Frontenac, each of those bases had 150 Afghans who were responsible for providing security so that our soldiers could sleep knowing that their backs were protected. And yet these folks have been abandoned in Afghanistan. Anyone who doesn't think that those people are vets really doesn't understand what it means to be a soldier in arms, as far as I'm concerned. So what can Canadians do to avoid that situation where we just put our hands up and say there's nothing we can do about it? Take some time, and I know it's it's something that Canadians never uh, never do. But I, I sure hope you think strongly about uh, giving your member of parliament a call and telling them to act. That's what's required. Because I'll tell you, if 
a hundred thousand Canadians across the country, scattered across the country, were to call their MPs, uh, there would be a stampede to deal with this. I mean, take some time out of your day. I mean, what does it what does it take to to pull up your member of parliament's phone number and call his office or her office and say you need to do something about this? How will you be spending Remembrance Day this year? I'll be at the uh, the services and then. Afterwards, I'll probably be answering emails like I've been doing all summer and since the uh, the spring, in fact, just dealing with a never-ending stream of desperate messages from people in Afghanistan who think that somehow I can get them to safety. And then I'll write emails where I have to disabuse them of that notion and tell them that the only power I have is in shaming my government to act. And that as much as I want to be able to help them escape the situation they're in, I don't have the ability to do that. Only these people who work in the Canadian bureaucracy, whose names they'll never know, whose phone numbers they'll never have access to, will be the ones deciding their fate. Well, Robin, thank you so much for joining us. No problem, Adrian. I appreciate you having me. That's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to retired corporal Robin Rickards. If you want to reach the team, email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm grudgingly on Twitter at Adrian K. Lee. And if you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.